Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to New Covenant. Hello to everybody who's, who's joining us online this morning. Please join me in prayer. Great Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. And I pray that for every person within the sound of this message, Lord, that we could clear out our worries, our concerns, our cares, that we could listen to you and what you have to say to each of us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Pastor Dave took us deeper into the book of Ephesians to chapter 5, verse 20, and his message was called Walking in Freedom. And this morning, by briefly reviewing and then building on what we've learned from the Apostle Paul, we're going to continue that walk in freedom by learning to walk in a way that seems anything but free, walking in submission. Now, that may seem a little jolting, almost like an oxymoron, freedom and submission are not generally words or subject that we typically think of together, but in God's sight, they fit together just right. So as a quick review, let's go back to Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 19. If you just want to glance through your Bibles, we're not going to read them, but I'm just, just going to skim over them. Uh, several commands to be careful how we live, not like fools, but like those who are wise to make the most of every opportunity to do good in this evil world, to not act thoughtlessly, but to understand what the Lord wants us to do, not to be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and make music to the Lord in our hearts. And then in verse 20, Paul said, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those behaviors and practices are what the Bible describes as walking in the Spirit. And for the most part, I think the majority of us in this room believe that with a little work and practice, we can do those things, right? There, there are goals that we, we can imagine reaching. We want to be that way, and we feel like we're on our way to living lives continuously guided by the Holy Spirit. But today we're going to start by combining the final verse of last week's lesson with the first verse of today's so that we can begin to talk about some very difficult things and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The phrase, and further, shows us that all the things about living in the Holy Spirit that we talked about last week are very much connected to the scriptures we're going to go over this week, having to do with submission to each other. They're not disconnected sets of ideas. They're closely related, even intertwined. So we want to look carefully at these two simple sentences. In multiple places, God's holy word teaches that mastering these behaviors that are described, being thankful for everything, and submitting to each other 
are key components to living a life filled with blessings, hope, and joy. Now, none of us are naturally very good at these things, yet concentration and repetition can and will eventually make these behaviors our second nature. And then our new mindset will allow us to create appropriate responses to life's circumstances based on our strong foundation in Jesus. First comes the ability to find a reason to be thankful in every situation, no matter how troubling. Dave talked about this last week. I think I got three good tires at least, right? Three different times in the week he had three tires. Um, it's not easy, but it's important to remember that Paul was in prison when he wrote those words, so he knows it can be done. He was a walking, talking example of learning to be thankful in every situation, no matter how difficult it was. And by learning to live with a biblical focus, we can always find things to be thankful for. But next is something tougher to learn, submitting to each other. We see the words submit to one another, and for some reason we psychologically slam on the brakes. With those words, a lot of us just emotionally tune out or turn away or, or decide, I'm just going to ignore God on this one. But it's important that we don't do that. Paul declares this unequivocally. Every spirit-filled Christian is to be humble and submissive, and this is foundational to all the different types of relationships we're going to touch on in this section of Scripture today. So thinking of others and their needs or desires is more important than our own doesn't happen naturally. Even the disciples of Jesus didn't get it, though he showed them and told them again and again at the Last Supper, they were still arguing over who would be the greatest. So Jesus showed them how to be the greatest, submitting himself to being their servant by washing their filthy, dirty feet. He demonstrated that others are more important than ourselves all the way through his death on the cross. And it's through our love and desire to somehow become more like Jesus, through our reverence of who Christ is and what he has done, that we are able to learn to willingly submit to others even though it is completely unnatural. And again, with practice and dedication to living out God's word over time, our devotion to becoming more like our Lord and Savior increases our ability, our willingness to submit to others in a way that's actually supernatural. Because if we're honest with ourselves, and that always is not easy to do, but as normal human beings, we're just not very good at submitting to anyone because we just don't want to. I don't have to do what you say. I want to do things my way. Now, in certain situations, that's okay because there are some things we should absolutely never submit to. Scripture teaches we are not to submit to anything that is contrary to God's word. God ordains human government, and from his standpoint, even an evil government is better than no government at all. The absence of government is anarchy, and no society can survive that. So we should submit as much as possible without disobeying or denying the Lord. But if the government goes too far, as happened in Nazi Germany, 
as some feel it's beginning to do in our country today, we must stand up and refuse to submit. Now, being submissive in a biblical way doesn't require us to be a doormat or to accept abuse, ongoing mistreatment, or things that, that put us in danger. Scripture says we must submit to one another in most situations of everyday life out of, what we say? Reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in other words, if we revere the Lord, if we love and truly honor and respect Jesus, we will submit to others to show our submission to him. And we're going to work our way through scripture passages today from Ephesians 5.21 all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And each one of them is about submission in differing situations and circumstances. Husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. And we'll look at each relationship along the way to make sure we clearly understand how these scriptures should be applied in our lives today. And I ask you to listen carefully with a mind that is open to the crazy idea that God is our creator, our father, knows what's best. He knows us better than we do. Odds are, I just have a sneaking suspicion, you're going to hear one or two or three passages that just might not set well with you at all. But please stay with me as we address the situations one by one so that we can learn to see these scriptures through the eyes of God's only son. So here we go. Ephesians 5.22 For wives, this means to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He, meaning Jesus, is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Okay, that's it. You can all go home now. That's uh, pretty much our, our lesson for today. There may be no passage in all of written history of the world that's more misunderstood, more misused and abused, and that may be a big part of the reason why no passage of Scripture causes so many problems in marriage and understandably makes women so incredibly mad. I wish with all my heart you could have been in our kitchen last week when my wife Rose asked me what I was going to teach about. I looked her straight in the eye and I said, Wives, submit to your husbands. And she laughed so hard and so long that we were both cracking up. I could have won that $10,000 home video prize. No, uh, no, no problem there. Full disclosure. In almost 30 years that we've been married, Rose and I have had a good number of big arguments, almost always over this subject. And breaking news, so have all of you, if you'll be honest with us for a few. Warren Wiersbe wrote, Remember that Paul was writing to Christians. He was in no way suggesting that women are inferior to all men or that all women must be in subjection to all men in every situation. Submission never implies inferiority. The Godhead or the Trinity is a perfect example. Our Lord Jesus is submissive to God the Father, but in no way is he inferior to him. The Holy Spirit is submissive to Jesus, but not at all inferior to either the Son of God or God the Father. Neither is the wife inferior to her husband. In many ways, 
She may be superior, perhaps in devotedness, sympathy, diligence, intelligence, insight, intuition, end quote. But scripture makes it clear. Wives are commanded to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord, and that part of the phrase is key. By submitting to the authority of her husband, the wife proves that she is actually submitting to the Lord's authority. John MacArthur writes, the command isn't qualified and applies to every Christian wife, no matter her abilities, education, knowledge of scripture, spiritual maturity, or any other qualities in relation to those of her husband. However, the submission is not for the husband to command, but for the wife to willingly and lovingly offer. End quote. When the wife submits herself to Jesus and lets him be the Lord of her life, she will learn to have very little difficulty submitting to her husband. And submitting to her husband does not mean that she'll become a slave or a robot. It does not in any way mean she'll have no say on the decisions that are made in the family. One of the biggest problems with this passage is that too many men close the Bible here and order their wives to go fix dinner and do the laundry, and then they sit down and, and watch a game on TV. They conveniently overlook or completely ignore the next few verses, which are critical in any marriage relationship. So ladies, now it's the husband's turn. And the Lord, interestingly, has much, much more to say about the responsibilities and duties of the man towards his bride. And we start with this in verse 25. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Guys, we have the responsibility to present our wives to Jesus holy and without fault, set apart, perfect. And it's important to understand that that statement was revolutionary at the time it was written. Most marriages were arranged. Love was not something that was very often at all factored into a relationship. We know it wasn't cases. We see biblical examples, but it was rare. Roman law allowed the man complete and total authority over the wife and kids, and they were often treated with less care and respect than the livestock. For Paul to state to the man that he was to actually love his wife was a huge step toward equality in that society. And then he took it a lot further, saying that the husband is to love his wife in the same way that Christ loved the church. And that sets an extremely high standard of expectation, doesn't it? Jesus gave up absolutely everything for the church, including his life. So a husband who uses the love of Christ that was displayed for the church as the pattern for loving his own wife will love her endlessly and sacrificially with no limits to what it requires of him or takes from him. And what wife could possibly object to submitting to a husband who actually demonstrates his love for her in the same ways as Christ showed his love for the church? Verse 28, in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually is showing love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it 
just as Christ cares for the church and we are members of his body. Again, a reference to Jesus being the head of the church, feeding and caring for us, the body of his church, as a sign of his love. And in verse 31, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Now, first, this passage shows that a man's relationship to his wife is of much higher importance and loyalty than that to his parents. So in-laws, take a step back. It's okay. It's designed that way. To be able to realize the high ideal of marriage, a man leaves his parents and is joined to his wife. The husband and wife biblically become one flesh. And there's actually a, a union of two different persons becoming one under God. And, and in a number of different places, Scripture speaks of things described as mysteries. We know that some will be revealed to us inside the gates of heaven eventually. Others are eternally only for God to understand and will never be explained to us. We must learn to accept that. And here, the mystery was hidden from us, mankind, in the Old Testament, but is now revealed to us in the New, that a wife is the same to her husband as the church is to Christ. Paul's not saying that this mystery is hidden or hard to understand. Rather, he's saying it's tremendous. The mystery is the wonderful purpose that was hidden in God's previous ages, in the Old Testament pages, but which now has been revealed. And the purpose is to call out the nations of people to become the body and bride of his glorious son. And some of you have probably heard Pastor Dave announce at the beginning of the year, we're going through the book of Revelation. And as we do that, you'll hear more and more about the incredibly high value Jesus places on his bride, the church. And you'll better begin to understand the mystery, the honor of being able to represent Christ and his church here today on this earth as man and wife. In verse 33, so again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Rose and I will hit 30 years of marriage in March if we don't kill each other before then. She loves to remind me that, yes, the man is the head of the family, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants to. And that's, that's not only funny, but it's true to a point. And I, and I speak from experience in saying, guys, a man who tries to lead his family without first taking into careful consideration what his wife thinks is right is in for a very bumpy road and a lot of wrong decisions. Look at a guy who's made plenty of them. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. As he was describing the creation of Eve. And describing the role of the wife as a helper seems to upset a lot of people in today's society, but I like to point out that the word helper is the exact same term Jesus used to describe something significant and powerful and wonderful in John 14, 15, where Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper 
who is the Holy Spirit, who leads into all truth. So the Holy Spirit himself is also described as a helper. Other terms in the Bible used to describe the same word are advocate and counselor, bringing to mind someone who's greatly trusted and highly valued, depended on for advice, guidance, and input. And ladies, there is wonderful honor, dignity, and importance in being your husband's advocate, counselor, his helper. God equips us men and women differently, not just physically, but psychologically and spiritually. And each of us is designed to be incomplete. We need each other. And we need God because that strand of three woven together is not easily broken. And while each role carries exclusive privilege and responsibility, there's no room for thinking that one sex is superior to the other. Just as the Holy Spirit is equal to God the Father and God the Son, a husband and wife under God's plan are equal to each other and determined to submit themselves to the other for the better good of the couple. As a married couple, he serves she. She serves he. And the two of them become we. And that pleases God wonderfully. Ladies and gentlemen, I promise you will have problems and issues in your marriage. It all goes back when Adam and Eve fell into sin, and as a result, there have been thousands of years of bad consequences for all of the earth, and we're each still paying the price today. In Genesis 3.16, in the New Living Translation, God said, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth. And here it is, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. The English Standard Version said, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So I thought of it this way. In modern language, we will butt heads. But we don't have to be butt heads. Did I just say that? <laughs> Adam and Eve were the original dysfunctional family because Adam did not step up nor live up to his role as the leader. And he allowed Eve to take over the leadership, and they both fell into sin. And thousands of years later, this is still happening in homes across the world. Worse than it ever has, families are disintegrating at a higher rate than ever before because society at large no longer lives by the Word of God. Next subject is not much, if any, easier. It's children and parents. Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, and this is the right thing to do. Honor your mother or your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. Now, just as a spirit-filled wife is to be submissive to her husband, spirit-filled children must be submit to the authority of their parents. And this is a fundamental duty of all children to obey their parents in the Lord. And they need to be taught by you that in doing so, they are obeying God himself. Not that you're setting yourself up as God. That's a big mistake. But the reasoning is simply that this is the way God has designed, ordained our families to operate. It is right and it's required. Verse 1 speaks of action. 
obeying your parents. Verse 2 speaks of the attitude, the motive behind the action. And Paul goes straight to the Ten Commandments using the first law that's about human relationships, honor your father and your mother. And it's the only command of all ten that also comes with the promise of special blessings to those who obey it. Verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Now, the word used here for father technically referred to male parents, but was also used in other places for parents in general. And since Paul has been speaking to both the husband and the wife, this most likely refers to both of us. However, Paul lived in a time when the pagan world was in charge of his homeland, and even most of the Jewish families had fathers who ruled in a very rigid and domineering way with total authority. And it was rare for any father to even consider the desires of his wives and children. And so Paul explains that as a Christian, the father's authority over his children is special and important, but it does not allow for unreasonable demands, rules, or actions that could lead his children into long-lasting anger and resentment. We have to be so careful to not break their spirit. Even our tone of voice matters. We have to firmly but gently guide them and teach them about their actions and behaviors bringing consequences. Absolutely, we have to do that. But deride, ridicule, punish harshly? Absolutely not. Now, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail on a totally different subject because Scripture teaches plenty about the proper way to discipline our children. It's all over the place. And in God's perfect timing, we'll get to that in detail from this, from this pulpit someday. I actually think the discipline and punishment pendulum has swung way too far the wrong way. And I think there are very few children these days who aren't spoiled, who don't bully and harass their parents into getting their own way over and over again each day. Especially to our young parents, you've been given a huge gift that comes with gigantic responsibility. You're to raise your children with discipline and instruction that comes from knowing the Lord. In the old days, it was called training and admonition. Systematic discipline and instruction that teaches children to respect the commands of the Lord is the foundation for a life of godliness and blessings. And just remember this. Parents who constantly give in are no better than those parents who just give up. We have to be able to take their phone away at night. We have to get their face out of the video games. We have to make them go outside. We've got to make them go to church. We have to make them do things they naturally are going to rebel against, but it can be done in a kind and loving way. And we need to be examples. We are not here to become our children's best friends. We're to be their protectors, providers, police, and politicians. We, we protect them from the evils of this way, world, not just physically, but by teaching them the ways of Jesus. And, and next week, Pastor Dave's going to go over a, a, an important part of that protection, the armor of God. We provide everything they need, clothing, shelter, but more important than that, providing them 
with a solid Christian background, foundation, education, starting when they're teeny tiny. Nothing is more valuable or brings a larger return on investment. We police them, and anyone who comes into close contact with them, other children, friends, adults, their, their coaches, everybody. And, and notice I didn't say we become their 24-hour personal bodyguards. There's way too much helicopter parenting going on these days. We have to give them some freedom. We have to give them the space to make some mistakes. But when they need us, we're never far away. And they may need us to catch them doing something wrong quite often. And the earlier, the better. So many parents allow horrible behavior by their kids to go on for many years because they just can't imagine their perfect little angels would ever do anything wrong or get involved in something they've been taught not to. Come on, get real. They're human beings just like us. Think about what you did when you were their age. The other job of the police, of course, is to protect them from the evil people of this world, and in doing so, we may make them upset. It's very easy to be self-righteous, to chew them out for their lack of awareness or understanding or how bad someone they want to hang out with may be for them. But we have to handle it in the right way, and it's so important to humbly explain that this is difficult for us to do, but it's the right thing because in the long run, sweetheart, it's best for you. Trust me on this. And then we politic. I know you laugh. We're just coming off of, the, off of the campaign. But we campaign for their brain. We point out what's right and wrong in this world and bring them into sharing ideas about how to fix things that are, that are wrong, that need addressing. We encourage them to use their knowledge of Bible uh, background and, and relationship with Jesus to campaign to others. Next subject, masters and slaves requires some special care and explanation because it's understandably a very sensitive subject, always has been, but especially in our world of the past five or six years. And in reading the Bible, it's always very important to not just study the text, but also the context, the situation of society when this message was written, who it was written to, and what the people back then understood it to say. The reality of day-to-day -day life then was that Slavery was very common throughout nearly all of the world. It wasn't usually based on race. Most often, it was those who were captured in wars and made into slaves, as in the biblical story of Daniel. Some families sold their own members into slavery, as in the story of Joseph and his brothers. A lot of parents actually sold their children into slavery. Individuals could sell themselves into slavery if they had a bill they couldn't pay or could not provide for themselves, and some, a good number, grew to appreciate their master and voluntarily pledged themselves to be slaves for life, usually symbolized by having an earlobe pierced with an awl, and they were called bond slaves or bond servants. The longest a Jew could be in slavery was six years, and then he had to be released, and he was to be treated as a hired servant. And he could actually, as a slave, acquire property and, if able, buy his way out of slavery. Not so with the Gentile slaves, who made up the vast majority of the millions in servitude. They served for life. And slaves had basically no rights and were treated as commodities, and there was a lot of abuse and harsh treatment of many, many slaves. An interesting the Bible doesn't actually speak against slavery itself. 
though Scripture clearly speaks out against its abuses, Exodus 21, 26, and 27, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 23, if you want to look. But let's read this Scripture. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. In the New Testament, we repeatedly see true believers described as slaves of Christ. Paul describes himself that way many, many times. So scripture took what was bad, slavery, and transformed it into something that is wonderful. Jesus as the perfect master. And we notice that the New Testament has a lot more to say directly to slaves than it did to kings and nobility. And a lot of people who are against the church will say that was just to keep everybody under the thumb. I don't think so. And I think if you look directly, you'll see other reasons. I think it's most likely to start with, Scripture tells us that not many wise, mighty, or noble are called to follow Jesus. The majority of Christians at the beginning of the movement to follow Jesus were very much in the lower economic and social brackets. It's very likely that a large percentage of early Christians were, in fact, slaves themselves. So Paul was speaking to the church in large part when he wrote this. Today's theme is repeated. Even slaves are to serve their masters as if they are directly serving, submitting to Jesus. And just as Christians are taught that God sees everything we do or don't do, Christian slaves are to work hard and honestly, even when the master isn't around and can't watch over them. You know, the same basic principle of Christianity does well in our workforce today when applied to each of us and our employers. Christian employees should be worth much more to their companies than those who do not know the Lord, more valuable than those who've not come to experience the grace of God. Yes, your boss and your co-workers should know that you are a follower of Jesus. But that sets you up to follow a much higher standard, to have a stronger work ethic, to be on time, to be dependable, to only call off if you're truly sick, to give your employer more than you're paid for. Never cheat the company, either on your time card or by loafing when you should be working. Way too many Christians today make a big deal of their faith and then set a terrible example to those they work with by whining and complaining, being lazy and breaking the rules and asking for special treatment. Your boss and your co-workers should marvel at your work ethic, at your character qualities, and at the way you express your care and concern for them and others. And our place of employment is the perfect spot to be happy, helpful, honest, an example of who and how a Christian is. They should look at us and wonder, I wonder what makes them tick. And Paul expands on this idea 
in verse 7, work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. I always remember my father when I was a child, especially in middle school, when we got to be smart alecks and, you know, like to, like to make fun of him coming home from work, dirty, grimy, filthy, sweaty, from, from his construction work, crawling through attics and, and, and digging and, and, and working hard 10, 12 days, uh, 10, 12 hours a day. But when I'd asked him if he liked his work, he always told me he loved his job because it gave him the ability to care for his children and his wife that he loved so much. And I had no idea that he was modeling the scripture back then, but what a blessing, what a wonderful example that was. Now, Paul goes on to the other side of this relationship between slaves and masters in verse 9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So business owners, managers, supervisors, take note. Jesus watches over the way you treat your subordinates. Now, no doubt there were Christians who owned slaves in ancient Rome. We know what happened here in the United States up until the Civil War. Paul writes a beautiful letter to one of them in the book of Philemon, asking for his mercy and grace on a slave named Onesimus who had run away from his master and possibly even stolen some things from his master. And then later, he'd become a Christian. And in this wonderful letter, Paul asks for forgiveness and reunion, reminding Philemon and all of us that relationships among Christians, regardless of a person's social standing, should be transformed by the love of Christ. We also know that thousands of years later, slavery continued to flourish in large parts of advanced societies, including Great Britain and the United States. It's important to note that over the centuries, slavery has disappeared everywhere the gospel has become dominant on this earth, mainly through moral reformation of those societies. Today, slavery still exists in many nations where other, uh, where other religions are dominant. William Wilberforce was a man born into great wealth and prosperity in Great Britain. He's not somebody most of us ever hear much about. His Christian faith drove him to endlessly campaign for what seemed a hopeless cause back then, the end of the slave trade. Wilberforce he could have easily hidden away in his wealth and lived an easy life without a single worry. Instead, he put his reputation, good standing in the community, even his health on the line because he was just fiercely driven to end what he saw through his understanding of Holy Scriptures as inhumane and unacceptable treatment of God's children. So, I want to wrap up today's lesson from Paul by going back to his Christian mentor, his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Matthew 20, 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And finally, such a basic scripture that we read all the time. 
that I think applies beautifully to everything Paul wrote here. Jesus in Matthew 7, 12, do for others what you would like them to do for you. This is a summary of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. We don't often enough stop to think through the depth and power of that verse. What is it that's so difficult about treating others the way we want to be treated? What we call the golden rule, clarified by Jesus, is more than just refraining from harming others. It's going out of our way above and beyond what is required to show our love and care for them. And why not start with those we're closest to, with our spouses, with our children, with our coworkers and our bosses and those who work for us? The same kind of love God showers us with every day is his foundation for the active goodness and mercy we are expected to express to our wives, husbands, children, even strangers. We need to look for every opportunity today to do good and merciful things along the way. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, tough verses today for many of us because of the way that we are. Father, it just seems so natural even when we want to be kind and caring, even when we think of ourselves as wonderful Christian people, we just revert to self, to me first, to you're wrong and I'm right to this isn't fair, to I'm doing way much more than my share. Lord, help us go over these scriptures today and each day this week as we pray, as we study. Help us to take them not just into our heads, but, but into our hearts. Help us to, to hide them away, to become part of who we are. Help us to look at ourselves first when it's time to find fault. Help us to see how we can make a difference for others through submitting to them through our love for you. Lord, we do love you and we praise you. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us. Have a great week.